Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services and its new sister company, the Academy of Interpretation, that launched in early 2022. The Academy of Interpretation is an online education and learning platform for the language services industry. The AOI's mission is to expand access to educational courses while establishing a standard of quality and professionalism. They do this by bringing language service providers, content creators, and students together on an online platform that's accessible to everyone. The Academy of Interpretation was founded to address the widespread problem of untrained interpreters working in the field. The AOI offers professional accredited courses for interpreters and serves as a platform for organizations to refer their interpreters for training. The AOI is offering Brand the Interpreter listeners a 10% discount on all courses using the discount code AOI10BTI. This code cannot be combined with any other discounts. But check out the episode show notes for more information about the Academy of Interpretation or visit their website at www.academyofinterpretation.com. Liberty Language Services is a rapidly growing language service company that recently celebrated 11 years of providing language access services, and they are currently hiring freelance interpreters for a variety of languages. To find out more about Liberty or to apply, Check out the episode notes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brandy Interpreter Podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez. Thank you for joining me today. I always feel like there's this long stretch of time between monthly episodes, so I'm glad to be here and I'm glad that you're here accompanying me as well. Today, I'd like to share with you the podcast episode that streamed live on YouTube on July 13th, in which I interviewed a professor and a couple of her students from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. It was actually a fun and engaging episode because we had a live audience, so the people that connected live on YouTube, on the YouTube channel, and they were posing questions, sharing comments, And so it made it this really live panel discussion. And as a result, I've decided that I'm going to be having lives on YouTube once a month with returning guests. So it'll be different content. It won't be episodes for the podcast. Those episodes will be guests specifically for the podcast. But the YouTube lives will be for returning guests. So this will be guests that I've had on the show previously. I'll be posting surveys and polls on the social media platforms to see who you would like to see return back and potentially have this live discussion and have questions for the guests so that we can answer on a live on YouTube. 
So if you joined me on that day, thank you so much. I really appreciate the support. You already know that I am here for you. Thank you so very much for showing me that support on the lives. And hopefully you'll decide to join me next month in September for another live on YouTube with a very popular guest that we had on the show. So stay tuned. Be on the lookout on social media for the upcoming posts about that live YouTube so that you could join and be a part of the discussion. All right, going back to today's episode, let me ask you a question. As a trained interpreter or translator, you abide by certain ethical guidelines or ethical principles in the profession. And for the most part, I think that our experience is that nobody really touches those ethical principles. From time to time, we may encounter or hear about or see that situations happen or arise in which potentially an ethical principle is tested. And we as a professional have to make the determination as to how to respond. But what if you're working for an organization and you receive a communication one day from the top letting all their translators or interpreters know that they are requesting a change of a translated term from one thing to something that potentially does not necessarily mean the same thing. And furthermore, it changes the narrative by changing the translation. As a trained language professional, how do you feel you would respond to such a situation? You are employed with this company, and this is coming from the top. This very type of incident is actually what two students stumbled upon upon their research in none other than their ethics and standards class for translation studies. So let's get into this discussion and find out a bit more about what they uncovered. Without further ado, please welcome today's guests on the show. Our very first guest today is a 28-year-old online student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He was born, raised, and currently lives in Guayaquil, Ecuador. As two of his mother's siblings married people from the United States, he has always had the interest in communicating with his cousins and other extended family. As nobody else was really interested in being able to communicate with both sides of the family, he took it upon himself to teach himself enough to have a conversation. This, alongside media he consumed while growing up, helped him to consolidate and curate his interest in learning languages, which eventually led him to pursue a degree in localization at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Please help me welcome Alvaro Cepeda to the show. Happy to be here today. Our next guest is Leron Esau. He is a CCHI and CMI certified Spanish medical interpreter. He is state court certified in a number of states and actively pursuing federal court and ATA translator certification. Leron is also a localization student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Leron, welcome to the show. Hi, Maria. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. And last but certainly not least is Dr. Lawrence J. Ram Ibrahim Aibo. She holds a PhD in translation studies from Université de Montréal. 
She is an OTT IAQ certified translator and a core certified CCHI healthcare interpreter and has been translating, teaching, and interpreting in the Americas, Europe, and Africa for the past 30 years. Dr. Ibrahim Ayibo designs translation and interpreting curricula for international organizations and currently teaches in the online certificate in professional TNI program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and in the online MS in TNI at NYU. She is the author of The Politics of Translating Sound Motifs in African Fiction and co-author of The Rutledge Guide to Teaching Translation and Interpreting Online. Please help me welcome Dr. Ibrahim Aibo to the show. Professor, welcome. Thank you very much, Maria, for this introduction. It's my pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much. Super excited to have all of you here today. And I'd like to first begin by getting to know uh, our guests a little bit more. So we're going to go ahead and open this discussion by, you know, we can't start this podcast by not getting to know who it is that we're speaking with. So I'd like to begin first with Alvaro. Alvaro, beginning with you, would you please share a bit about yourself and how you came to find the TNI program that you're currently enrolled in? Yes, sure. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, my issue with uh, looking for um, a college education was that I wanted to go to the United States, uh, mostly because my family lives there, but uh, I was denied a student visa. So my, my only opportunity to, to have a college education in the United States was through UMass Amherst. Uh, through their, it's actually a very affordable and flexible education program. So I've been, I've been treated very well and I've been learning a lot in only the past two years since the pandemic started. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. And you are from currently uh, connecting all the way from Ecuador, is that correct? Correct. Guayaquil is basically like the New York of, of Ecuador. You know, all the businesses and it's a main port and all that. Very exciting. Super excited to have you. Thanks so much for being here. Next, we'll go on over to Laurent. Laurent, would you like to share a bit more about yourself and your career as a language professional? Thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to speak a little bit. Yes, um, I uh, arrived at the U.S. Uh, at the uh, UMass Amherst program uh, a little bit in a non-traditional way. Um, I, as a working professional in the language uh, services industry, uh, as you mentioned in your in my bio, uh, I am medically certified and and I work in the state court system as a uh, judicial interpreter. Uh, but as you mentioned, also uh, began to pursue federal. Uh, 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 certification and also the the ATA certification. So I was searching for uh, training that would would give me a, a really solid foundation as I you know, prepare for these different exams. Um, amongst uh, many other uh, programs that I investigated, I was really impressed with the U, uh, UMass Amherst program. Uh, it's been uh, all that it was built to be, and and I've uh, learned tremendous amount of. Of information and and it was a pleasure to to uh, to work on this project in particular. Yeah, and we're gonna get into what that project was and what you guys ended up unraveling. But before we get to that, uh, Professor Lawrence, if you would be so kind as to share also a bit about yourself and how the this project that led Alvaro and Laurent to present on this issue even came to be. Yeah, so um, actually it has to do with the way I learn myself. Um, 
because we learn uh, our entire life long. And I do happen to listen to a number of podcasts, including yours. And I was looking for a new type of final project in uh, the course um, I was teaching last spring, um, Ethics and Standards of Practice. And I didn't want to assign another presentation or paper because I found them boring and less relevant nowadays. Um, so I decided to design um, a, a final project as a 10-minute podcast in small teams of two or three people. And this is how this came to life. And I was, uh, um, I was flabbergasted by, by some of the projects, including this beautiful project. Yes, and beautiful project it was because what was the uh, actual um, requests that you had given the students for the project, Professor? So um, the final project in this course is always uh, focusing on ethical dilemmas. So students have to identify an ethical dilemma. Sometimes it's more difficult than we think um, because a dilemma is not right versus wrong. This is very easy. Uh, we know with codes of ethics what course of action we should take. It's when we have an imperfect solution or course of action versus a less imperfect solution or course of action. A, a complex situation where there's, there's always a gray area and there's some... some uh, some some depth to it to engage in uh, critical analysis and critical thinking. Yeah, and I think I think definitely um, this particular project that was presented by your uh, team of students uh, definitely hit that mark. And if you're probably wondering, well, what was the project or what did they submit? I'd like to share with you a very short clip as to what they ended up submitting. It was longer than what I'm about to share, but you know, this gives us the gist of uh, what the ethical dilemma was. So I'm going to go ahead and play that clip for you. This is Alberto Cepeda and Leron Esso, and we're going to talk about an, an ethical dilemma that we came upon. Uh, this is our final project for a translation and interpreting ethics class. And we thank both UMass and Professor Lawrence for giving us the opportunity to do this novel, yet delightful assignment. Juan, do you want to talk about the case study? Absolutely. Thanks, Alvaro. Uh, for our subject, we are using as a case study uh, a recent internal email that was sent to Google's contract translators regarding uh, the conflict that is ongoing in Ukraine. As a request, or maybe more accurately, an ultimatum from Russia, Google has requested that its translators no longer use the word war to re refer to the Ukraine uh, situation or the, or the war in, in Ukraine. Rather, it's being uh, uh, requested that it be referred to as, and I quote, an extraordinary circumstance. End of quote. So this po podcast, we're going to discuss uh, the ethical dilemma that this email poses to Google translators. We're going to reconcile it with the specific codes and make some of our own personal assertions uh, in that regard. In terms of dilemma, dilemmas, uh, the, the obvious one is how should Google respond uh, to this request or ultimatum by Russia? Uh, what are the implications of their acquiescence or their resistance and how does that affect the interpreters? Uh, we're going to do it from a macro level and a micro level. Alvaro, will you handle the macro level? Yes. Exactly. I'm going to take a Google stance. Presumably what many, uh, what a group of localization project managers have had to do with this specific case. 
my assertion is that Google has taken a decision that, although unethical and contrary to multiple codes of ethics that we've started, uh, and including their own, um, I think Google's response was done to protect to protect their their employees and contractors from government retaliation. Specifically, I'm talking about uh, two of their laws. Um, one, re it's called the Russia Landing Law. Uh, basically, uh, any information company that wants to settle uh, to work with Russia has to establish themselves into a physical building within Russia territory and their, their fake news laws, quote unquote, where they have to acquiesce to to what um, to what Russia considers to be not re good uh, news that represent uh, represent the, the facts in, of of any of, of news in general. And what I assert is that they wanted to to comply with this specific uh, internal memo just so that uh, their their translators wouldn't see any any harm caused to them. I, I appreciate that assertion and that that assertion rather. And and when we look at it from the micro of uh, the micro level, uh, the level of the translators, you know, obviously when we look at the codes of ethics that we've discussed over the length of this this course, th this is something that's totally in contrast or or against the code of ethics. Uh, when we look at the, the number, uh, uh, the numerous codes of ethics that we've discussed, the IITA, NAGIT, NCICH, there are certain re recurrent principles such as accuracy, neutrality, and impartiality. And uh, that really uh, goes against uh, entirely what uh, Google is asking his translators to do. Specifically, the ATA Code of Ethics has this very interesting and relevant quote. It says, linguistic integrity is at the core of what translators and interpreters do. Faithful, accurate, and impartial translation or interpretation conveys the message as the author or speaker intended. And notice this caveat with the same emotional impact on the audience. So then by asking them to alter, to modify uh, just one simple word, war, to extraordinary circumstances, they are buffering. They are, you know, altering the, the emotional impact that that word causes uh, or is intended to cause on the audience. And by doing that, it's ethically a conundrum. It's ethically uh, a dilemma. This really isn't about semantics. It's not a pragmatic or linguistic debate uh, about word choice. It goes to the heart of what really is at matter here. Uh, politics. Uh, and that goes to the voice, the positionality, and the morality of the translators uh, that are being asked to, to acquiesce in this regard. And I agree. This is this is this was done as a mitigative effort, in my opinion. I believe that, uh, for example, taking into account the, the Middlebury College uh, Code of Ethics um, for the local localizers, um, Specifically, at their cause no harm and cultural fluency policy, they had to take a very quick decision within the, their, their framework and within the, all the cultural um, situations at hand and took a decision that would be the best for the safety of their employees and their workplace. I understand that. Uh, but at the same time, they, one cannot ignore that there are probably uh, financial benefits that Google stands to reap by acquiescing uh, to Russia's request. 
And so then when we look at this situation and if we look at it uh, in its entirety, it's 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 entirely a case of censorship. And in that regard, it really reminds me of uh, the study that we did of Spanish film during the Franco regime. You know, basically there, uh, the regime tried to to mold the political ideology uh, of the Spanish population. They tried to to mold the country by by limiting um the, the people's access to foreign information and and editing, modifying, omitting, uh, and, and totally changing some of the films uh, to accomplish that end. Here, again, censorship at its at its core, and that that goes at the heart of the voice and the positionality of these contracted interpreters who are Russian. Uh, so they're trying to again uh, mold the political ideology and again alter the impact that the, the word choice has on the Russian people. Uh, and so in, in that regard, I think it's uh, very relevant to the code of ethics and uh, again, goes to the, the voice and the positionality of those Russian contracted inter- uh, uh, translators. And yes, I, I agree. I agree. But uh, think about it this way. They had to be quicker on their feet about this, this issue. They inciting their own um, po- uh, policy, Google's own, which might not be uh, translator related, but it's still their own uh, policy. Uh, they have a, a way they have to follow their safe and healthy workplace uh, requirement. And with this, these conditions, I don't think they, w- they would have been able to. Uh, and just to think about it related to World War Two, uh, you remember the reading that we had to do about um uh, translators, ad hoc translators that were ha- had to oftentimes uh, communicate without their, their consent and to the detriment of their own people. I believe that in this case it could be it could be um, morally morally justifiable to a degree that they are um, relenting to one thing that the that the Russian government is is asking for an internal memo that is not released to the to to everyone else. It's something that they relented. They've lost the fight, but they won the war. That's my opinion in this case. Well, I, uh, I appreciate that. And I think it, it is a, a, a balancing act. You know, as we read by the article by Tarina Bell in Personal, Personal Ethics and Language Services, she mentions that translators, translation rather, is not the place for martyrs. So no one should be subject, you know, to, to imprisonment, uh, to sanctions, or, or to have their lives jeopardized because they do their work well. While at the same time, Rebecca Tipton and Joanna Drugan mentioned in Translation Ethics and Social Responsibility that responsibility can never be ideologically neutral. And so there is, you know, again, like you said, no no black and white areas here. Uh, is, uh, interpretation, uh, translation uh, is very, very much uh, at the core of this. And um, it is a, a situation in which these codes uh, have to be reconciled, and it seems unreasonable to expect uh, translators to omit segments of conversation based on, uh, again, some nubious or ambiguous danger, danger qu- uh, quotient. So, in in, in conclusion, uh, what, why don't you give us your your final thoughts on this on this uh, subject, Albert? My final thoughts, as we discussed before, I think the the code of ethics. Uh, applies as a guidepost. It's not something that we can uh, read religiously and apply to every situation ever. I think we have to hone our critical thinking and moral uh, thinking skills 
and apply them accordingly to the best of our ability, specifically in these very complex situations. Uh, I agree with you. I think uh, codes of ethics have come a long way since the Nuremberg trials uh, by by establishing, you know, ways in which uh, translators and interpreters can guide uh, and, and and navigate these uncharted ethical uh, situations. And you'd like to think the society as well has come a long way since the Franco regime and the concentration camps in World War II. But then when we look at uh, modern day, you have to ask yourself, is that really the case? When we look at Postville, Iowa, when we look at the USRI trial, and now this situation in Ukraine, it's obvious that ethical situations will continue to present themselves and not only present themselves, but morph uh, and, and evolve and mutate into new, perhaps um, unimagined situations in the future. And so this really gives us uh, something uh, to think about, food for thought, as we have to deal with these very nuanced ethical dilemmas as we embark on this career. So, okay, so let's get into what this means. Like, was it difficult, first and foremost, to Laurent and Alvaro to come to a consensus about the project that you wanted to submit? Or was this just like a game changer and a definite? Please, Laurent. Well, uh, Alvaro and I uh, had several discussions about uh, projects that uh, would be uh, good candidates for, for our final project. We didn't want to to choose a, a generic or a um, textbook style uh, case study uh, of what an ethical dilemma would be. A patient arrives at a at a at a uh, emergency room and and there's the ethical dilemma uh, regarding the direct the medical directive or or something like that. We wanted uh, to find something that was really relevant, something that was really um, nuanced. And uh, this one, uh, amongst a number of other subjects that we talked about, uh, this one really kind of uh, fit all of the requirements that we were looking for. Yeah. And Alvaro, who ended up stumbling upon the, the articles? How did, that, how did that come to be? That actually took a lot of time. Um, we decided barely one month before submission. So um, it was just week after week of looking for new articles about something relevant to our uh, to our industry, as well as uh, that requ- uh, met the requirements for the project. Um, and also, I, I was, like, Ron knows this, I was very, like, specific of, about finding something that was interesting, something that, uh, you know, would be- get people interested into, into it and, and was currently relevant. So I found this about the, uh, the war in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine, that's it. And what about you, Professor Lawrence, when you came across the project that was submitted, what were your thoughts? Wow. <laughs> I was I was blown away because um, usually um, interpreters encounter more ethical dilemmas than translators. So students end up focusing on, and rightly so, on dilemmas uh, that interpreters face. So it's quite um, it's more difficult for students to to select or to pick a topic that has to do with translation rather with with interpreting. So immediately I was interested in what they had selected, and um, I, it was the first time I came across this uh, this problem issue topic. Uh, so I was very curious to read about that, but I was most curious about and interested in the way that they uh, they dealt with the the topic. This was uh, something that was, I was very impressed. 
Yeah. And how did you both deal with the topic? So for those that haven't had the opportunity to listen to the full project submitted, which, by the way, was how many minutes long that was uh, had to be submitted? What, were the, what was those parameters, Laurent? Yeah, we had a 10 minute limit. So this was a, a subject that has a lot of teeth uh, and we wanted to you know, address it from uh, several uh, reconciling at the same time a number of uh, ethical uh, standards of practice and code of ethics. And to do that within 10 minutes was was probably the largest challenge. Yeah, I cannot imagine trying to put in a topic into a 10 minute podcast like that's it. I'm already going over my one hour as it is when it's really good <laughs> stuff. So 10 minutes uh, condensing the content in 10 minutes, I, that in itself was, I'm sure, a challenge. Aside from the fact that you guys had to meet, you know, the project parameters and deadlines and all of that, as professionals or soon to be professionals in the field, what other concerns came to mind as you're reading these articles? Go ahead, Alvaro, please. Uh, more so than the ethical concerns in paper, I was concerned about, uh, you know, the people in se- itself. So um, and that's what I was I would uh, I was talking about later in my uh, podcast, specifically about what happened with the employees in, at Google because they, they were relocated. I, I don't know if I'm going a little bit further than we should right now, but uh, that was my main interest, that they, they are kept safe, which is, you know, before it comes before any kind of social political issue, is that people are safe. Yeah, the people, Laurent? Uh, from my perspective, uh, I, I really looked at it uh, from the linguistic point of view, and in that, um, as the professor uh, mentioned at the outset, uh, ethical dilemmas and conundrums are really black and white. Uh, we lived in a, in a very complex society, and these these types of ethical issues uh, are constantly emerging, uh, and they take on new shapes and new situations almost daily. When we look at the news, different types of situations uh, could pose ethical dilemmas for those that work in the language services industry. So we wanted to, to take a real issue and, and show how it applies not only uh, from a general sense, but a pragmatic sense, also on the micro and, and the, the micro le- macro and micro levels uh, of the issue uh, as it pertains to you know the companies involved, but also the language professionals. Yeah, the companies that are that are involved, especially I think because you know we're we're thinking about you know uh, big big names here, right? It's it's, it's Google. But what what could that imply for the smaller, right? Like the smaller organization. So, which we'll get into in just a second. Alvaro, did you like to add something? No, just something really quick. It, since uh, uh, Laurent mentioned it, he tackled the issue in a micro level. I'll tackle it in from a macro level, specifically um, pertaining to what to the branch of localization, which is what I'm, uh, what my college degree is going to be about. So. Um, so basically, um, I was looking into us what the decisions from a company level are, like mm-hmm. even because you know you have your inner decisions and you also have what you disclose to the public. You have to consider many aspects at the same time, and since it's a war, you have to do it pretty quickly. So it's 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 a very complex ethical dilemma. Mm-hmm. Laurent. And and the project does not uh, purport to indicate what a person should do in in the specific ethical dilemma. Uh, what it does is highlight the need to be cognizant of ethical dilemmas, identify them, and then be able to apply uh, critical thinking ability and skills 
to be able to make ethical decisions. And so those decisions may differ, may vary from one uh, professional to another, uh, depending on their circumstances, their, their position, their, their voice, et cetera. Uh, but uh, it, it just kind of highlights how uh, very, very nuanced uh, these, these ethical dilemmas are, uh, given the times we live in. Speaking of ethical dilemmas, perhaps this is a question for Professor Lawrence. What ethical principle for translators has been violated here in this particular scenario? It's, um, I'm not saying that it is a specific principle that has been violated, but uh, translators are social beings. And um, what has been done is, is borders on censorship. Right. Uh, basically, a company is uh, telling uh, the staff that a particular word cannot be used. Um, now, uh, of course, we can uh, agree or disagree, but what is at hand is a war. A war is a war is a war. So it's difficult to go around and, and look for other words. Uh, and even though this is a very immediate situation, we are all uh, faced with this uh, situation and we are uh, living the news, listening to the news and the media uh, who are using the word war. So it's difficult as translators to uh, circumvent that particular terminology. We're talking about terminology. And uh, so it is a form of censorship. But because we are are uh, deep in the in the middle of this uh, crisis of this war, it is difficult to immediately um, highlight or identify what is at stake. Right? Uh, we don't have a necessary distance to um, analyze uh, a, a, a particular situation. It's easier, like in history, to analyze a situation that happened 20 years ago when they are in the thick of the, the problem of the issue, it is more difficult. And I'm sure um, Alvaro and, uh, and Laron have more to say about that than, than myself. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I was just going to add, and particularly in retrospect, um, seeing it from the uh, eagle's view, right? Um, being able to see a beginning and an ending where we're, we're in the middle of it, like you just said, Professor Lawrence. Um, Alvaro, Laron, is there anything else you would like to add, Laron? Well, sure. Um, the, the core of the issue here, as um, it was brought out, is not a word choice issue, uh, the pra or the pragmatic uh, subject of, of the meaning of a word. Uh, it's linguistic integrity. And so uh, during the course of the ethics um, uh, course that, that we uh, participated in, uh, we analyzed 17 different codes of ethics and, and looked at them from different angles and so forth. And as it pertains to this particular uh, issue, what really stood out to me was um, a, a reference from the American Translators Association's Code of Ethics, where it mentions that lin linguistic integrity is at the core of what translators do. And so uh, the responsibility or the obligation of the translator is uh, to relay or to render uh, the source material in the same manner, uh, to have the same emotional impact on the audience as was intended by the source language or, or the source text. And so uh, even though we're talking about perhaps one word, uh, that altering, that shifting, that modifying of the source text does, uh, does hinder, does filter, does uh, alter the emotional impact on, on its audience. 
I'm going to play a bit of a devil's advocate here and and um, bring in when we we are talking about source meaning. Um, so preserving the meaning style and register right of that source document. Whose meaning in this case is it the author's meaning, or is it the public's interpretation of the meaning? Well, I, that, that's a very that's a very interesting that's a very interesting um, the question. Uh, in this particular case, um, there was this is a, con, a, a carte blanche quest that any message uh, be filtered in this way, and so then it, it's uh, it doesn't take into regard um, the, the 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 source of the of the original message, what their um, what their message was. It's it's um, basically filtering uh, any any input that, that's coming through you know, the Google um, machine, so to speak, uh, so as to alter, you know, the impact on its audience. And so uh, basically our posture or my posture was that as language professionals or as translators or as interpreters, it's not our job to get involved with political issues. Our uh, our loyalty, our obligation is to to the text. So, um, you know, that, that was the posture at which I, you know, approached it. Uh, I need help. I'm scrambling to find interpreters for our board meeting. We have a staffed Spanish interpreter, but we need Korean, Farsi, and Arabic. Plus, we have a slew of IEP meetings coming up, most of them in exotic languages. I'm calling everywhere. I know what we need. I met the perfect translation agency at OCDE's Interpreters and Translators Conference, Certified Interpreting Services. They offer in-person and virtual services. Certified Interpreting Services? Yes. They're professional, warm, and perfect for our diverse district's needs. How do we contact them? Call or email. It's all on their website, cisinterpreters.com. cisinterpreters.com. That's just what we need. I'm contacting them now. Thank you for calling Certified Interpreting Services. This is Jasmine. In an article um, that was written by Jack Schofer that's entitled uh, Words Have Power uh, in uh, uh, Psychology Today, he states, uh, and I quote, words cannot change reality, but they can change how people perceive reality. Words create filters through which people view the world around them. Now, it's safe to say that companies have a say in the use of the terms that they'd like to use for their products or services, right? Like, say, accepted, translated uh, terms. But in this case, it goes beyond that, does it not? The choice of the words are changing the narratives uh, or would change the narrative if that is, in fact, what you know Google decided, if, in fact, they decided, hey, this is... This is where we're going to we're going to stay. We're going to continue changing the word war into an extraordinary circumstance. Um, what other implications do you feel uh, like this uh, can also have in the language industry? What are your thoughts on that? Alvaro? Yeah. Uh, with my analysis during the, um, the podcast, uh, I did play devil's advocate. I took uh, Google's side, per se. And what, yes, they are doing censorship, and that is um, morally bankrupt. Um, they did that to acquiesce to one demand and not all of Russia's demands. And I asserted that um, they did it so that they would protect their people, the people working at Google. So in my case, um, I felt after reading everything about the case, 
is that uh, they comply with one request and just, but only in the in the very specific uh, Russian region of, or let's say the Russian uh, language uh, services that they provide. Mm. Um, that it didn't translate into every other uh, of their products. So it's very specific, uh, location specific. And, uh, and yes, well, they, they did censor that. They were very clear in their main uh, policy in English that we, well, not clearly, it was clearly ambiguous, you know, to, to, to reserve any, any issues. Um, but they did specify that uh, that's only for clarification. The, the actual policy is the one in English. And, uh, and what, I, what I wanted to, um, to portray with this is that they, they were doing this to protect their translators because mm -hmm. um, from retaliation specifically. So because in case they, they might say something that angers the, the, the Russian uh, uh, regiment, they might um, incur into, uh, you know, something really bad, like uh, prison sentences or life sentences even. So um, it, it was like a measure to acquiesce to a power to, in order to protect the people. That was my posture. Mm. Laurent? Well, and another layer uh, to that is the line between being a language professional and, and uh, a linguist and uh, their charge to concentrate on linguistic integrity, and then this sort of filtering. If, if Google were the author of the source text, then by all means, they have, you know, the, the, the authority to, to kind of dictate how they want, um, you know, their, their source text translated. But um, these are documents uh, from, that originate from other sources. Uh, and so then uh, there is an altering of the text. There is a, a, a modifying of the text. And so then that line is, is whether you're performing uh, work as a translator or as a linguist, or if you're being a spin doctor or a fixer or an activist or a propaganda promoter. Uh, so uh, I think the codes of ethics and standards of practice are designed to isolate translators from those, those sort of repercussions. Um, I think translators should be insulated uh, from external biases through the course, we were taught to, to identify and recognize our own internal biases and then to make ethical decisions based on those on those biases. Um, so I think this really kind of muddies the water, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing with a giant here when it comes to, you know, um, the, the type of company where this occurred. But what if we bring it down to the smaller scale companies um, and some that are perhaps not so inclined to, to you know, take uh, localization per se, you know, into consideration where this is just, you know, a, a request coming from like an like internal policy, if you will. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts with regards to, to translators and, and how do you deal with internal policies versus, you know, our own um, uh, ethical principles that we should be abiding by? Mm -hmm. Laurent? If I may, that's precisely one of the, the, the subjects that we discussed in the course. Um, as, a, as a language professional, translator and interpreter, one has the, the autonomy uh, oftentimes to, to make a decision as to accept a, a certain project or not. Um, those decisions oftentimes may have consequences, um, and some of those consequences may be un, uh, unintended, um, but that autonomy, it does exist. So 
uh, a person does have the right to to look at a, a situation, a project that's particularly a translation project, and and exercise that that autonomy uh, as to to whether or not you know he'll participate in in, in the project or no. Yeah, you're right. It comes down to that uh, individual decision at the end of the day, right? Um, do I want to do I want to hold uh, and be true and um, honor my ethical principles as um, a language professional, um, or do I want to abide by potentially the uh, company policy that is uh, requesting that, which could, in fact, like you just mentioned, Laron, have uh, potential consequences indeed, right? That could mean that they part ways, which then brings me to maybe the next issue that could arise, which is contracted translators maybe that um, may not necessarily be, and I'm not saying that this is in fact the case or what happened or what could happen, but uh, someone that maybe is not necessarily abiding by ethical principles as a translator and um, maybe going uh, abroad to be able to obtain uh, such service. Did you come across anything like that potentially or any of those types of dilemmas during your research, Alvaro? Mm -hmm. Specifically, not really, but we did take that into consideration because um, not all of the people it wasn't clarified in the articles about the, this case that it, they were actually um, a, people working directly in Google headquarters in Russia. Uh, so w we were wondering, yes, if that uh, that could be that could you know go counter to their uh, to their needs as, as people. They could lose their 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 um, I don't know. They could lose their, their work. They could lose their house. Their their, uh, their safety. Uh, and and that 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 was a that is still uh, an issue for people. They they have to acquiesce to what the, the the sorry to call it that the propaganda machine in Russia uh, wants to do. But but um but indeed it's it's uh it's worrying. Definitely, Laurent. Uh, to that end, you know, during the course of, of this ethics class, we we did um, examine and read a number of carefully curated. Um, documents and articles regarding ethics and so forth. And there was one article that I thought uh, had a very resonating um, position. Uh, it was uh, authored by Tarina Bell, and the name of the article is Personal Ethics and Language Services. And it said, and I quote, translation is not the place for martyrs. And regardless of which jobs we accept, it's our job to do those jobs well. And so, again, I don't think anyone should run the risk of having their lives, their personal integrity, their their financial well-being jeopardized because they do the job well. Uh, not the place for martyrs. But again, it does kind of show the focus to concentrate on the linguistic aspects to, to do the job well. Yes, yeah, very difficult. And, and I can only imagine being in a, in a situation such as that to have to decide, right? Um, I'd like to bring in a special guest. Um, today's special guest is uh, uh, Professor Cristiano Massey. Uh, he's a senior lecturer and director of online translator and interpreter training from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And I'd like to welcome him uh, to the show to give a little bit of uh, perhaps his insight and share some of his thoughts. Professor, thank you for being here, welcome. Thank you so much for having me and I am so proud of these two students of ours for engaging critically with such an important topic. Um, and for Professor Lohans for having designed this amazing class that, you know, 
uh, encourage students to engage critically with the field of translation and interpreting, but also the professional side of it. And here, I think we are seeing an example of an ethical dilemma of, um, you know, either you um, follow the directions of your commissioner. So we, we use the word commissioner for, for, for the, you know, agencies that hire our work and the, uh, and the, the, the personal dilemma of the and professional dilemma of keeping linguistic integrity, right? Um, and this is also a great example uh, that shows that translation does not happen in a vacuum and it's not only about language. Uh, there are other forces, you know, involved in the production uh, of translation. And we see this, this powerful force of Google uh, trying to influence um, the work of translators. So I think this is great. And thank you so much, Mireya, for uh, having this podcast. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you, all of you, for the opportunity to even present it on this platform, because I think that, um, and just yesterday I had someone ask, is this something that could affect um, the interpreters or for translators? But I think that we always need to be, you know, cognizant of what is happening in the industry, T and I, right? Because what could affect one side could potentially affect the other. And so uh, it never hurts to, to just be well-informed um, about what's happening uh, out there in the industry. Uh, for all of us involved. Uh, Professor Cristiano Massey, uh, and then I'll come back to you, Professor Lawrence, just what does this mean for students? The students, particularly uh, uh, your students of TNI and ethical standards of practice, is this going to be part, a part now of, uh, of your training or when you're doing your courses, you know, bringing, the, bringing this situation to light? What does this imply now for students of TNI ethics and standards of practice? Thank you. Thank you so much for asking that question. The, um, when we designed the certificate, we wanted to put ethics at the heart of the curriculum yeah. because we strongly believe that because translation and in, in interpreting impact other people's lives, that students need to learn how to engage with these two activities uh, critically. So putting ethics at the heart of the program, and we designed one course that focuses only on ethics and, and standards of practice, although they do see uh, ethics and standards in the other courses, we have one course that students dedicate the entire semester reading and uh, working on these issues. Uh, because it's extremely important, because uh, that's what we do. We, as Lohan's uh, Professor Aibo mentioned earlier, uh, translators and interpreters are social beings. We are in the world and, and everything that we do and put out there will have an impact on other people's lives. That's correct. Thank you. Professor Lawrence? Yes, I just wanted to go back to the notion of forces or power dynamics. This is an excellent example of power dynamics. You have a giant such as Google who sends a memo that um, the translators, maybe staff, maybe freelance translators um, are not to use the word war. But it's it's not only about emotions, it's about facts and it's about the power dynamics, mm. who is the perpetrator mm. and and who has to um has to go through this situation. So uh, calling um, extraordinary circumstances, uh, calling a war extraordinary circumstances is, uh, to see the least, um, uh, transforming the, the reality, right? Um, so it's, 
and and because it's a giant who gives this kind of um of, of sends this kind of, of memo and it's a media giant right. it also impedes on the news we are going to read in what languages etc so it has tons of ramification this is enormous the, the, the topic that Alvaro and Naron have identified and, and analyzed has um, multiple ramifications. And yes, the 10-minute format was absolutely not sufficient to, to discuss <laughs> it, but they did a wonderful job being very concise and going straight to the uh, essential points. Oh, definitely. And and to leave you hungry for more and going in search of more information yourself, which I'm completely uh, taken aback that there is uh, very little information actually out there with regards to this particular topic. And, and, you know, I'd love to have the opportunity to even ask those translators, like, what what was that like um, for them? Going back to the changing of the term from uh, war to extraordinary circumstance in the reading of the articles, I also identified that one of the other terms that that, you know, was um, being requested to be uh, transferred to a different uh, term uh, was the use of special military operation in lieu of the word invasion, which I found very interesting. Now we're talking about special military uh, uh, operation in an extraordinary circumstance. It's wow, so vague, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, what is really happening. We, we have somebody from the audience here that is saying, uh, Cloudzer Technology says, could we really blame Google in this situation, though, since they might be protecting their translators, right? So maybe in some cases, the well-being of the people might be greater than professional ethics. I think uh, I think we did touch on this uh, quite a bit ago. Alvaro had talked about really wanting to focus on the aspect of, of the individual, right? Right? Um, as opposed to, um, you know, necessarily sticking by professional, the professional ethics. And Laurent, you mentioned it as well, right? Really making that decision there uh, where it comes down to the individual, of course, knowing what your professional ethics are. And eventually, I think, you know, at the end, at the close, I will, I, I will share that what Google decided to do in the end. So it's not like it was just left, you know, at, at this and, and people had to ignore it, right? Um, so, Alvaro, you wanted to add? Yeah, something uh, really, really small. Uh, in some of the readings that, that we did uh, was about um, translators or forced translator um, interpreters, I mean, during World War II. Usually they were people that uh, of Jewish descent, that they were forced to interpret against their own people. Mm. And that it's really reminiscing, re reminiscent of this case because um, you consider people ethics, human ethics, uh, separate from professional ethics. Is that correct? Is that not correct? It's for you to decide. It, it's something that you need to take into account because professional ethics or uh, human ethics would only take you so, uh, so long. You have to take both into consideration in this type of uh, issues. Yes, absolutely. Laron? And another layer uh, to the discussion that we we talked about uh, on the podcast and, and kind of vetted a little bit uh, has to do with the financial implications that uh, acquiescing to this type of request may have for big corporations like Google that may have business interest in Russia. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, there's machine translation term bases where they generate literally hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for uh, for companies. And so uh, is it truly just a, a humanitarian interest or are there other interests that are not so transparent at play? 
Professor Cristiano. I was just going to add that um, part of the the um, making the decision of what to do with an ethical dilemma is to take some time to think about the consequences of your action, right? I, I said uh, earlier about whatever we do is going to impact people's lives. And it's not only other people, but also yourself, right? You have to think about the consequences. And that's what we mean when we say we want our students to engage with translation and interpreting um, critically. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, as you're going through these studies to have something so relevant that usually, you know, you're going to school and you're doing research and it's stuff that's happened in the past, like uh, Professor Lawrence had uh, mentioned in the beginning. So we're able to look in retrospect and what could we do, but here it's something in real time that's actually still occurring. And so, you know, very relevant to this day and age and what we could potentially encounter as we enter the profession, um, you know, and, and the companies that we're going to be working with, uh, uh, Professor Lawrence? Yes, um, what Alvaro just said about the conflict, um, the conflict, here I am, uh, modifying my terminology, <laughs> myself. Uh, the, the war, the Second World War, which was a, a, a huge conflict. Um, and it reminded me of this beautiful mo movie by Roberto Benini, uh, Life is Beautiful, where the uh, Benini plays the role of the father of a little boy, they are in a concentration camp. And at some point he has to interpret, he's forced to interpret uh, the orders barked by this German uh, officer and to protect um, his people, his community, and his little boy, because he wants the little boy to believe that it's a game, he interprets something completely different. So he interprets, oh, he, these are the rules of a game. You will do this and you will do that. So this is also, uh, this is exactly what we're talking about in, in, in fiction, but um, this is an illustration of things that we have to do sometimes uh, as interpreters or translators to protect uh, to protect people from immediate harm. Mm. So um, if you haven't um, seen that, that movie and this particular scene, it's very touching and it's very um, thought-provoking about the power we have to protect people from harm at some very specific moment. Yes. I, it, what's coming to mind is uh, the interpreter that, you know, we saw on a lot of articles um, just recently, you know, with the emotion that she had as she's interpreting, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the power, uh, the power of words going back to that. Um, we talk a lot about the issue and what, you know, it, its potential implications. What are some potential solutions moving forward for maybe for students or just for the workforce or um, anyone in general for the audience that's here today? Uh, what are some of those potential solutions that we could be looking into in preparation of potentially something like this continuing to happen? Um, because we, you know, we don't know, right? Um, anybody like to chime in on any potential solutions or, or things to consider as we move forward? Yes, Laurent, please, and then Professor Lawrence. Well, I, I, as we mentioned earlier, um, ethics is not a, a black and white subject, right? There's a gray area. There's there's um, uh, personal circumstances that come into play and in, in situational circa, uh, situational uh, issues that that factor into place. And we live in an ever-evolving world. So the, this situation uh, perhaps could mutate and, 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 and transform itself into another type of conundrum. The idea is to, to have a very clearly defined ethics 
and then to uh, be uh, to be um, able to identify things that challenge those ethics and, and then be able to make decisions uh, to reconcile those two factors. Definitely. Thank you, Professor Lawrence. Uh, I'm, I mean, just to answer your, your question about how can we better prepare, I, I think we all need to, um, professionals need to really engage with ethics, uh, with readings, with trainings, with very specific trainings. Uh, let's talk about uh, machine translation and ethics. It's a huge field. It's a huge area uh, because all the talk about machine translation nowadays is what it can do, etc. And, but what it does to on many levels is little addressed and this needs to be addressed also in an ethics uh, course so the more we read the more we engage with um, conundrums or dilemmas the more we are equipped i believe that the word is equipped we need to be equipped and prepare you know one of the things i did now that you mentioned ai immediately was i thought i went in that direction when i was doing my research and you know when i first came across this uh this topic uh, uh professor lawrence when you submitted the request uh was google the word or you know and see if there had and you know if there were any changes anywhere else not that i could read russian um but i i wanted to make sure like what is this something that is actually already happening you know like in the bigger picture right with google but um we did we did clarify that it was very very location-based, very specific um, to to where Google was actually operating in Russia, which I believe, uh, if I if I have this correctly, had something to do with the law that um, that they have to in order to do business there, right? Yeah, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it in, in, in Russian, but in English, <laughs> it's uh, fakes law with an S, F A K E S. Uh, basically, oh, no, I'm sorry, that that's the the, the the censorship law. There's another law with uh, telecommunication uh, uh, companies where if you want to have, uh, if you need to, to do business, if you want to do business in Russia, uh, you need to have uh, an HQ within the, the country and hire people from Russia. So yeah, it adds a lot of, um, you know, permanence to your, to your business side of things uh, when you're forced by the government to do so. Right. So that means that these are these were translators that were in that specific region, in that specific area. Such interesting. What a fascinating discussion, everyone. I'd like to uh, kind of give uh, the opportunity for our panelists to speak on on anything further that they'd like to add with regards to this discussion. Anything that's prevalent that potentially, you know, you would like to share with today's audience or later on for our podcast audience. Professor Cristiano, please. I was just going to say, you know, moving forward, going back to this idea of what do we do moving forward, and Lohans was uh, uh, very clear about this idea of seeking knowledge, right? Uh, Mireya, you as well went to do research. Um, and we also need to think about translation and interpreting as a combination, a collection of different skills that we develop uh, over time as we are working in the field and also as we are learning, educating ourselves. One in particular that is very closely related to this dilemma is decision-making. Mm. Decision-making is a skill Uh, that gets developed over time, and it only gets developed once you are exposed 
to dilemmas and have to critically engage with it. So, you know, um, trainings and, and, you know, it doesn't have to be at the university level, but, you yeah. know, a, a training that does engage students with uh, ethics at this level uh, are very important as well. Most definitely. Absolutely. Being engaged in the profession and the topics that are uh, prevalent out there in the industry is uh, so important, I think, and in, in educating ourselves to help educate others as well, because I think that's that's one of the things that I uh, appreciate about this platform is having the opportunity to learn as I go, learning from professionals such as yourselves, uh, Professor Lawrence, Professor Cristiano, and the students that are part of these programs and what they're unraveling and putting out there. Um, there isn't much content out there. There, unfortunately, at least not on our end um, uh, with regards to this specific topic. But the fact that it was even an issue and that it was, you know, someone said something, right? And it was it was brought to light. Uh, any other closing thoughts that you'd like to add? I'm going to uh, go ahead and show uh, another comment here from our live audience today, which uh, is Nelly that says that the problem she sees in many places is that ethics ha uh, have been redefined. Uh, so we think and should be it's not for others or it's not existent. So uh, the ethics have been redefined. So we're thinking that it's not it's not for others or that it's not existent. Um, is that what you meant, uh, Nelly? That we're, that's those are the thoughts. Go ahead, Alvaro. Uh, that's my aunt, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Tia. But, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, no, uh, I agree with her. Um, thinking about it with from a cultural like viewpoint, uh, we have different priorities with different cultures. Like, for example, as you may know, Mireya and Professor Matze. Here in South America, everyone is very, very uh, have, have family as a priority versus in other places where they might not. It, it might just be a second thought, thought or not not as, you know, uh, a hard issue within the family, within the, the culture. So that's another point. Like we're becoming more global. Uh, like I myself have been changing uh, my perspective after uh, engaging with people from different parts of the world. So. Mm -hmm. It's, it's something that is evolving right now. So I think we need to look for both, for both uh, a way to, in, in the Venn diagram of, of ethics, having your social ethics, your human ethics, your professional ethics, all be within that Venn diagram and not, and not outside of that. Just, you know, just like I said, as we are people um, that speak, speak both languages and usually are between two, two different uh, circles, we usually uh, are the only ones that have all the info. So we have to be very neutral in our stance and very, very well educated about it, too, in order yeah. to take this. Yeah. And I think, you know, going back to the whole uh, notion of, of ensuring that we are um, putting ourselves out there in the sense of, you know, getting training and information and, and basically taking in, um, you know, situations such as this, it, it places us in that position of what would I do at least, right? Should a circumstance like this be presented to me as the professional interpreter, translator, what could I do? And it gives you the opportunity to place yourself, um, you know, firsthand in, in, in potentially a situation like this and, and at least hypothetically, uh, come up with some sort of solution or, you know, what you would be doing in that place. Today's discussion was a fascinating discussion. I think this topic, again, I go back to uh, agreeing with Laron, 
many teeth. We could have gone into so many directions, you know, technology, the workforce, um, you know, the, the ethical principles, of course, that in itself uh, and many other things. Um, I'd like to point out that according to uh, recent articles, Google did begin pulling out employees out of Russia and they shared the following comment. Um, and I quote, our policies prohibit content denying minimizing or trivializing well-documented violent events, including Russia's invasion in Ukraine, end of quote. So I'd like to thank today's guests, uh, Alvaro Cepeda, Lorena Saul, Professor Lawrence, and Director Cristiano Massey, all from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, for coming on this platform today and sharing your stories and your experiences. Thank you very much for being here today. I very much appreciate you. And with that, I say farewell. Thank you Thank for having us. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Yes. Thank you very Thank much, Miriam. What's wonderful. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.